Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. We are super excited to bring you another great episode of Juanced. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. For all of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms this week, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly, available here on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. So check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwants Podcast, as well as our website, juwants.com. Also, make sure you are following us on Instagram, where we are at Juwants, on Twitter, we're at Juwants Podcast, for all the latest updates and episode drops and teasers. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Juwants on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we would love it if you left us a five-star review There are rumors out there on the dark web that it makes some kind of difference for our ratings, so we would appreciate that. You're on the dark web? No, I've heard of this (laughs) thing called the dark web. (laughs) Listen, anybody that's checking this out later in the video or if you're watching online right now, no, there's definitely a dark web. Uh, It's just not on it yet. Uh, Right now, you might notice that Dan and I are, again, uh, in remote locations from one another. This is not a typical thing. Uh, And, and you know, unlike last week and the weeks before that, when I was in the States or Dan was in the States and we weren't together at the same time, Dan, you now find yourself in Israel and I'm in Israel, too. uh, But you are uh, isolated at home. I am isolated at home. So uh, I went on a... Uh, speaking, meeting, greeting tour with uh, my new job at Shiraka, and which is how I met our guest today, Anat. And we'll, hi, Anat, how are you? Hi, all good. We're going to introduce you properly in a second. Um, <clears throat> but I met Anat as part of the speaking tour. She is, of course, the um, Israel's consul general to the American uh, Southeast, and she hosted our delegation for um, two of those uh, wonderful days. And then, of course, Israel decided to once again arbitrarily enact new restrictions and say that even if you're vaccinated, you have to um, put yourself into quarantine um, when you get back. And so that's what we had to do. Yeah, uh, I, I, I sense some editorializing in your voice there about Israel's new COVID restrictions. Could it be that your, your time out of Israel for the first time in a year and a half impacted your view of what's going on? Well, unlike you, it was actually not my first time out of Israel. I went to uh, Dubai. True, and, true. And Abu Dhabi twice, where I saw that they were, uh, it seemed like they were handling the COVID issue in a lot more sensible way than uh, we are here. Um, I saw a very different approach in America, which seemed to be more of kind of ignore what's going on, <laughs> put your head in the sand and just live life anyway. Um, 
So, so I've seen uh, two approaches to COVID, but yes, I think it's kind of ridiculous that uh, you got back a week before me. You're not in quarantine, um, but I am. Um, anyway, anyway, that's why we're not together. And we had some adventures on the flight back, actually. Um, I've never had such adventures where, oh my God, I don't even want to get into all of it, but uh, they rerouted my flight twice. The, the travel gods are not kind to you. Yeah, they were they were not. Uh whichever I don't who is the Greek god of travel? Is there such a such a Greek god? No. Or a Roman god. No, no god. <laughs> they should. There should be. I'm gonna look that up actually in a second. But that's it. So I went on this uh delegation. It was um it was really energizing. It was incredible. I met a lot of fascinating people. <clears throat> I was I think reintroduced to a world that I had been involved in in different ways and in different aspects. And, and, um, and that's, like I said, that's how I met our guest today, Anat. Um, so like I said, before we introduced her, I was so impressed with you, Anat, on this trip. And we had such a fun time together that I said, uh, we have to have you on the show. And uh, you found an, uh, a window in your schedule to be able to join us. And we're glad you did. I'm glad to be here. You're speaking to us from Atlanta still? Indeed, yeah. Indeed. And that's where you've been living for the last few years. Yes, arrived here a little over two years ago. So it's it's been an interesting two years for everyone in Atlanta as well. It's not a, it's not the typical posting when you have COVID to factor in. Yeah, right. Uh, Zoom diplomacy, I guess that's, uh, you know, we've had Zoom school, Zoom meetings, Zoom work. And, and I guess you've had to do Zoom diplomacy. Um, we're going to learn all about that in a second. Uh, Benny, you want to? Check it out, guys. Like always, Joe wants to say listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners such as yourselves to make sure that we keep this party going. So if you want to uh, send out your support to us and make sure that we keep bringing you quality content, quality podcasts, quality guests, uh, and, and general good banter and good times, uh, <laughs> you can definitely make sure that you join one of the many listeners in over... Dan, how many countries are we at now? Penny, we're up to listeners in 100... And 32 countries. Wow. 132 countries. That is, I would say that like we should just start saying the countries that we don't have listeners in at this stage. It's true. And, and you know what? I'm hard pressed to think of who they are, except for China, which I think we're just generally blocked from. I think we're blocked. We have China. Blocked. I mean, we have listeners in Iran, Afghanistan. I hope uh, for our listeners in Afghanistan, we really hope you're doing okay and you're being safe. I actually talked to one of them um, over the last week and, and he. Trying to keep his uh, spirits high, but he's also trying to get the hell out of there. Um, it, it is it is not encouraging to to see that news. Not good. It is not good. But um, um, you know, b- back to our show, we we do have listeners all over the world, including there, and uh, it's been incredible. You know, we didn't talk about this because when we hit our one year anniversary of making the show, you were abroad, and then I was abroad, and. Um, so we haven't really had a chance to properly sit and, and reflect on what it means to have been doing Juanced for a year. No. Uh, but kind of one of the fun moments is when you're traveling and uh, you're talking to people and they say, oh, you're Juanced. You're the Juanced guy. Yeah, it's kind of cool. <laughs> it, it, it's very cool. It's very cool to think that something we started, um, you know, we, we had a purpose um, and, and, you know, the higher intellectual purpose of what it is we're trying to do. But it's also something to do during COVID that we want to keep going and uh, to see that it's... Since, since COVID keeps going forever. Since COVID keeps going. 
Um, but it's stuck, and uh, and I think we've grown with it, and the show's grown, and I'm very happy with that. And uh, we'll do it. We'll do once we're back in the studio together for the next episode. We will properly uh, reflect on all of these things. Good. So, um, in, so so that you can make that happen, listeners. Please <laughs> generously donate. You can make an ongoing contribution via our Patreon account, Juan's uh, pay, uh, Patreon, or donate one. Uh, if we want to make a one-time donation, you can donate to our PayPal account. All the information on how you can do that is on our website. Again, www.juanced.com. Lastly, last announcement, if you want to host a Juanced Live, of which we've done a few recently, and we have a whole series of those going, you can do that. Reach out to us and we will gladly host an event, a podcast. We will moderate a panel or a session for you or be the speakers ourselves, uh, whether uh, right now virtual or hopefully once again soon in person for you or your community or your Jewish organization. So for all of that information, uh, and if you want to see uh, Benny and I doing this kind of thing uh, for your organization, then check it out on our website, www.juanced.com. Terrific. And, yeah. So let's uh, let's get to our episode. We have with us Anat Sultan Dadon. I always like the hyphenated names, um, who is, as I mentioned, the Consul General of Israel in Atlanta and to the American Southeast. She has been with the foreign ministry since 2004. Her first posting was in Cameroon. She's also had positions in Germany, at the Hague in the Netherlands, and most recently in Canberra, Australia. Benny, be careful. She has an MA in criminology, so she can see right through you and all of your foil stick. And we will be talking to her uh, today about... Israeli diplomacy in the United States, about what it means to be a consul general, about the state of diplomacy in uh, kind of the era of uh, social media and political polarization and all of these wonderful things. And we'll also mention, Anat, you, you kind of buried this. Well, I guess it's not part of your bio, but uh, growing up, you kind of also had a, a diplomatic experience as the child of right. also uh, a senior Israeli diplomat. So first of all, welcome to Juanst. We're glad to have you with us. And Thank maybe you. before be here. before we begin, my wife also has a degree in criminology. Does that mean that she can see through me? Absolutely. So let's start at the beginning, Anat. What's it like growing up as the child of a diplomat? Well, um, I loved it. And I think uh, most families that I've spoken with have, have kids that I either loved it or hated it. Um, I loved it. So I was born in the Netherlands and then growing up, we were in Israel, but also in Kenya, Egypt, and Egypt. Italy. So it was, um, yeah, I would say a good preparation to the curiosity and the interest that I have in other countries and other people's languages, etc. So um, I loved it. Amazing. What, what was the most interesting place to grow up and, and the next question is what was the most challenging so those are two different questions what was the most interesting place to grow up and then what was the most challenging place to grow up i'm trying not to be a diplomat here but really <laughs> they were all interesting um, um kenya you know i was fascinated with safari and everything i was a kid that uh, um, that i think is difficult to beat but um Egypt was a very interesting experience. It was on the one hand, arriving there as diplomats. On the other hand, um, my father going back uh, to what was his home, to oh, wow. to where he was born. So that was a very um, 
a very special experience. And I would say that's probably also where the challenge, where the challenge was as a child, because we were there, my father was there on his first posting, he later returned as ambassador, but he was there on his first posting, it was in the early 80s. And we were not popular everywhere. So in school, even though it was an American school, the American school in Cairo, which was a phenomenal school, I had to deal with a lot of the questions about what and why Israel is doing what it is doing. Um, I think normally, you know, kids from other countries, they don't really need to be into politics or what exactly the political situation in their country is. But uh, I remember that from a, from a very young age. Wow. Does your father speak Egyptian Arabic? Was it, you know, from a cultural perspective? So was it, did you pick it up too? Did you pick up uh, the Egyptian dialect? Very sadly, no. The, the two years that I lived in Egypt, uh, the American school then um, it provided French as a second language. And yeah, unfortunately, I do not speak Arabic. I can understand a little bit, but that is something that I deeply regret. You know, this is, I'm assuming, in the pre-social media days. So were people, you know, the kind of questions you received were probably completely influenced by mainstream media or by stereotypes or what you know what what was the kind of the questions you were getting how would that differ from the kind of questions you know that let's say you were doing this today in places like Egypt or even in the U.S. you know how would that differ the kind of uh, curiosity the kind of opinions people have about Israel how, how would that differ I don't know that it necessarily differs um, I think uh, I think it's you know, it, 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 can, it can change maybe how things are presented, but in essence, I don't really think there is a, there is a major difference there. I remember, for example, one, a, a one class specifically, um, and I don't remember what the context was or why the teacher decided to discuss the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and a, um, the establishment of the State of Israel. And walking out of the class, my classmates asked me, so really, so you Israelis just kicked the Arabs out of their homes and just decided that it was your homes? So I think that that, you know, in, in many ways, that question can can reappear even today. It's just a, yeah, I think a, as a child, it's a, it's a, um, I was in fourth, fifth grade there. Um, it's a yeah. It's a sobering way to uh, to get acquainted with what uh, with re- representing Israel means, even if yeah, even if you're not officially a representative. Yeah, I can only imagine. How did you decide to join the foreign ministry? How did you decide to become a diplomat yourself? Well, it was actually um, it's it's something that I was always sort of interested in in the back of my mind, but I. I was absolutely certain that this is not the career that I would pursue because um, I knew what it was about. And I knew that it's a career that has significant implications, not just for the person uh, who holds the career, but for the family, uh, because it is a career that involves the entire family. And so I was um, certain that this is not the career that I would pursue. Um, And then... um, 
my husband came across the a, the ad for the cadet course in in the newspaper and told me, Annette, this is really you. You need to apply. And after trying to convince him why it's a terrible idea and explaining all the disadvantages, he was not convinced. And I did apply. And that's how, I, yeah, I started my own journey in the, um, in the Foreign Service. If, what, if you don't mind. Exactly. <laughs> we get together. What was it together? What were you doing before? If you don't mind us asking. Yeah, no, not a problem at all. Um, so I studied, a, as mentioned, I studied a, a criminology for my master's. I did psychology in education for my bachelor's degree. And I sort of tried out different, uh, um, different fields. Um, so I worked, um, I worked with some injured veterans in rehabilitation. I worked a little bit. I worked for a, a certain period at the Israeli Ministry of Defense. I worked at a, a Channel 2 News at the Foreign Desk. Just did a little bit of, yeah. Find, finding out what is out there until I arrived at this at this profession. It it really is kind of cool when you think about it. Like a lot of us go throughout through life not knowing exactly what we want to do, and sometimes we kind of ease our way into whatever it is that we find ourselves in, and say, you know what? Okay, I guess I'm in my you know whatever it is, 30s, early you know late 20s, mid 30s, whatever it might be, and say, uh, you know, I work in this industry. I guess I'll just do this now, and and I might as well. I'm pretty good at it, or whatnot. And then other people have kind of these aha moments where they're literally going through a newspaper, and 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 it's like, oh. Yeah. And in your case, it wasn't like, you know, your husband asked you to, you know, if you should do this and then, and then you started on the path. But, you know, I, I, I think I've talked about this in other episodes, Dan, where it's like the place that fate sometimes plays in our life, where, you know, where, where, where you, you know, if you wouldn't have opened the newspaper that day or if they had not posted the ad in the paper that you would, you know, had read, right. yeah. you would not find yourself sitting in the room that you're sitting in in Atlanta, Georgia right now. And, and it's, it's like one event, you know, plays into the other. It's true, but I think it's a lot to do also with just being open to to opportunities, to discovering new things, to trying new things. Uh, I think that uh, when I when I left um, when I left, I think it was just a few months. The Channel Two News, and certainly when I left, uh, when I decided to leave uh, the Ministry of Defense, people were like, "Are you stupid? I mean, who who leaves who leaves the, um, those kinds of places you can grow, you can develop, but um, but I think it's a it's also about knowing um, for yourself what's not a fit. Yeah, right. And and you know, I think we're kind of in an age today. Uh, I mean, I'm personally going through this still. I just I literally just started a new job and and a new career path that I didn't imagine. I didn't imagine I would be doing it a year ago. Um, and we just kind of live in this place and time where people don't go to a place of work anymore for an extended period of time. Uh, maybe, you know, now that you're a diplomat, that's, that's different because there's a I long do. trajectory. But, uh, but no, kind of what you've done, Benny, uh, you know, you went into the tourism world and, and even there you've jumped around from company to company a little bit. But A little bit, but, but, now, but now the world has other plans for tourism. So it's yeah, like, right? no, I, yeah, we might have to be forced to do something else. And you might have to be forced to do something else. And, and you, you know, you launched a podcast, which you, you never saw yourself doing. So it's like no. you, you have to be really flexible. And I think what you said in that is, is right, is you have to trust yourself um, if you have a social or family safety net all the better. 
And we kind of live in this time of age where you just can't count on anything. And, and if you see opportunities, you know, you got to jump and you sometimes got to say, okay, let's see where this goes. You know, uh, let's try a new adventure. Let's try a new path. And, you know, I think that's just kind of the, the age we, we live in these days. You know, it's funny you mentioned that when I made Aliyah in 05, I had imagined myself uh, joining the foreign ministry or something similar. And in my first position in the military, I worked very closely with the foreign ministry. And everyone, including from the foreign ministry and all my friends, oh, this is perfect for you, you have to go. And, and what you said is, is exactly kind of, you know, where I had in my head is, you know, and my wife at the time and still to this day was like, no, I, I came to Israel to be in Israel. I didn't come to Israel to live around the world, you know. Um, and, and so I kind of gave up on that option and said, okay, this is, this is not for us. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll find other things to do. Um, but, but it is, it's something that most people don't think about is that when you go on that career path that you did, you're taking your whole family with you to live a very, you know, unusual lifestyle for the next 20 years or whatever it is. Um, and, and it's interesting that it's your husband who, who pushed you to do that. What, what does he do or how did he adapt professionally to all of this? You're totally reading my mind again. <laughs> Maybe that's why you do a show together. I so um, I was fortunate to choose wild, wisely when uh, when I married him uh, um, 23 years ago now, uh, in that um, he has a character that is very adaptive and he finds ways to get things done and work it out no matter where he is. And he's done different, uh, different things uh, along, uh, along the way. Um, so I, um, I can't say that I feel like I've, I've cheated him out of uh, his life because in many ways, you know, th this, is, this is ours. It's, um, it's a joint venture. Uh, he, was down for, he was down for the journey. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, it's an essential component, uh, no matter what you're doing, really, but especially if this is if this is the, the career and the lifestyle and the girls as well. I think, you know, there there are many challenges in having to to change location every few years, say goodbye to your friends, uh, fit in again. Um, but, uh, you know, advantages and disadvantages like everything. Can I ask you, because I, I had these conversations with my wife because we're, you know, in the process of uh, perhaps moving. And it's kind of one of these things where it's, you know, regular normal people, I don't think, do that or, or give credence to the ability to do that. And, and if they do, it's like, well, we have to find this perfect time where the kids are at this certain age where they're, you know, not susceptible to having this super letdown of having to have their whole world be shattered and this and that. How do you explain it to your kids when you're going from place to place? And how do they experience... Uh, you know, that separation and, and, and reconnect or, or new connection to the next place? Well, I think it's a lot less about explaining because this is how they, this is how they were born. This is how they grew up. This is what they know. Um, but I think it has to do a lot with how we feel about things, right? If we're enthusiastic about the next step, about where we're going to, what we're going to discover, um, that rubs off on children. Yes, there are challenges, but um, I think overall, um, you know, maybe maybe further down the line, uh, we'll hear the complaints about how we've ruined their lives. But so far, um, <laughs> I think they're doing uh, they're doing fine. 
Good. How, how old are they now, by the way? So we have a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old, and an 11-year-old. Okay. So this is this is the time to enjoy kind of middle school and high school life in uh, in the United States, I guess, right? Yeah, ish. With the with Zoom, I think it's a um, it's a different teenage world. Um, but um, yep, that's that's true. That's true whether you're in the in the U.S. or elsewhere. Right. Well, it's definitely allowed us to maintain relationships with people that otherwise we wouldn't be able to to maintain and 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 depth of relationships that are kind of you know not not obvious to think about uh, in our times. Um, beyond that, you know, I'm just curious about a lot of things. You know, that your lifestyle is very is very uh, interesting to me. And it's very curious to me the whole you know living and moving to, to different places. How how does it work? Do they do they suggest to you? a number of different places where you might be interested in taking a post or does somebody come to you and say, we need you to go to Cameroon? Or, or do you suggest where you want to go? Right. You're like, Hey, you know, like, how, how does that work? So um, as a cadet, the first posting, uh, you are told basically where you're going to go. We were given a list and I think we, we had to choose from the list, like our top three priorities. And that ensured that we would not get any of those. And then, um, and then, yeah, I was basically told you're going to Yaounde, and Yaron like, and I. You were like where? Yaounde, Cameroon. Yaron no, and I I'm... actually had to open, yes, to open the map and look at it and and start reading about it because all we knew was that, um, yeah, they they played soccer, and. I'm glad. I'm glad we. Did. I'm glad we did. It's not a place that I would have ended up going in. In, in no other scenario, really. And it was a fascinating a posting for us. But really, after the um, um, the cadet, you have the cadet course, and then there is a period. It used to be three years. Now it's five years. Um, but when you're no longer in the cadets, a, a, a cadet in the ministry. Um, then every year you will see the opening positions for the coming summer and you can decide whether and what you want to apply for. And then it's up to a nomination committee and the various applicants for any given position to then choose who is going to be nominated for any specific position. And so I did, I did choose, um, to go, but it's always a question. Uh, it's always a question also of when you want to go on posting and what is available at that time. Um, and sometimes, yes, it's part of a conversation with with the ministry. In uh, sometimes they are looking for someone to fill a certain position, and they will ask, "Are you interested?" So there's that as well. Ba- based um, on what? Based on language skills? Based on just personal connections? Based? How does that work? It can be it can be about language. It can be about a, a, you know a, a field that a, that you've dealt with. Um, it varies really, and it's a relatively small uh, foreign service. And so um, yeah, we do we do know, know each other, and uh, and um, it's a, it's not always, but it's often also a, a two way a two way street. But um, I did choose to be here. And I feel really fortunate uh, that uh, that I was able to receive this uh, this posting. And that before we get into the posting, uh, for for our American listeners, just so they can understand, 
when you say that Israel's foreign service is a small foreign service, could you compare it to the to the to the foreign service of let's say the United States or a larger country so that people can get a grasp of what we're talking about? I cannot um, <laughs> because there is no you, comparison. Uh, no, look, but just I in terms of numbers, how many how many so diplomats? So I don't know what exactly what exactly the numbers are. I can tell you when it comes to the Israel Israeli Foreign Service, we speak in hundreds. For the uh, for the American Foreign Service, the State Department, it's certainly not in the hundreds. Um, so yes, a big, big difference, and not just for the United States, you know, with many foreign services, I've seen colleagues from other countries where, for example, um, they specialized in a region, Francophone, for example, or uh, Latin America, et cetera. Um, we have less of that in our foreign service because we are much smaller. And so um, I feel that in, in many ways, we, we are able to, uh, to also develop more diverse careers within our foreign service. Okay. I, I noticed that, um, and I noticed on your bio, it said you served in, um, you served in, in the intelligence sector of, of the military. Um, I, I did too for a time period. And I noticed when I would meet my American counterparts, for example, you know, they will have spent 20 years doing country X or region X. And uh, I, I don't know if it's something, you know, just in the way we do things in Israel, we tend to move people around a lot. So you'll get much more uh, generalists here. And I think um, at least working with the Americans, I noticed they like to have specialists. I don't know if, if that cuts across other parts of how they do things versus how we do things. But what you just said kind of reminded me of that. And maybe that's something you can do when you have, you know, such um First of all, you have to take care of the whole world, but you also have thousands of people versus hundreds of people, like you were saying, um, for something like this. Uh, it, it, you know, what was Cameroon like? What, what, what do you? What does an Israeli diplomat do in a place like Cameroon, and what is life like there? Well, you know, just how's that experience work? Well, it's a fascinating experience. Our embassy in Yaounde, Cameroon, is similar to our other embassies in Africa, is sort of a regional embassy because from Cameroon, we also cover several other countries in the region. So that included that included also at the time Gabon, Central African Republic, Congo Brazzaville, and Equatorial Guinea. It was a fascinating experience. And um, I think where I first encountered people who remember what Israel did for them when they were first trying to, um, to get a hold on, on their independence, on, on their um, 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 infrastructure in so many different fields, a, a medical, agriculture, education, um, and many there remember what Israel had done for them when Israel itself was a very, very young country. Yeah. And I think that is a, a it's, it's a beautiful thing to see. But of course, today, there is there is so much that that we do and can do in Africa. Um, and I think that a, a, there is a there is much more of an awareness of, of the importance in, of our relations with this with the countries in this continent and all that can be done. In terms of the mission of Israel in Africa, you mentioned that some of the people in Cameroon are, uh, you know, they might recognize what Israel has done 
for them. I think that that's a, a part of a story that a lot of people don't necessarily understand. Uh, and maybe you can help us. What 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 is Israel's role in Africa these days, or has it been? Uh, well, there was um, um, when I'm referring to what Israel has done. That is that is to do with the with Israel's foreign aid agency under the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Mashab. Um, um, and that uh, that is still going on today, um, alongside relations and many other different uh, levels and fields. So, of course, economic relations, political, etc. But uh, through uh, Mashav, Israel's aid, aid agency, still today, uh, we carry out a lot of projects and activities in order to um, um, to share. Israeli know-how, experience, technology, to empower in fields where Israel Israel has something to share. And in many ways, that is very relevant for Africa. I know that when we were there, we were heavily focused on different medical programming, again, agriculture, but also developing small businesses, women empowerment, and I think we, we need to remember, yes, it's different aid programs, but we benefit from them as well, because that's part of the, that's part of the conversation and the two-way streets that we have with mm. countries, with peoples. Um, and it's, so, it's a form of soft power, basically. I mean, right? It's, it's, it's a diplomacy through international aid, through, uh, through extending soft power. And it's something... Um, I mean, it seems to me kind of from the side that, you know, as, as a small country, we are, we, we certainly try um, to, to do that a lot. And it's something I think that we could do even more of, um, certainly to developing parts of the world, um, whether it's that or, or agriculture in, you know, kind of drier parts of the world. Um, so, so that's really cool. Right. Um, so there's a, there's a, um, um... There's a reference uh, to that, and that you know we're 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 known in many places as a startup nation, uh, but this what we're discussing has has to do with us being also an impact nation, and how we can harness um, what we what we have learned, our know-how, our technology to um, to help address uh, global challenges and other countries uh, who sometimes share challenges that we do. Do you find that the private sector, which is where a lot of this innovation comes from here, is readily willing to jump in and help in these kind of um, cooperations and collaborations when the foreign ministry or other government agencies ask them to jump in? Or is it, is it do you have to convince them? Well, what's the dynamic there like when, when you know, you want to, I don't know if it's startups and you want to get a startup involved in in helping in, in some African country, you know, what does that look like? Well, usually, at least from my experience, what we did was not directly with specific, a, a, with specific companies in terms of a, um, of Michelle, but yes, sometimes cooperations are mutually beneficial. You know, if you have a, a an Israeli technology to do with the, with water management or with water purification, um, whatever the case may be, yes, they can um, um, they can contribute, but also obviously it's a part of what what they what they establish themselves for. So it serves yeah. both a dual purpose. Be- Benny and I were talking, um, you know, in, in the prep for this uh, episode, 
and it dawned on us, you know, there, there are, we'd love to get a breakdown of how um, the Israeli diplomatic structure works in the U.S., of course, as much as you're allowed to share. Um, but, you know, there are, of course, the, the ambassador to Washington, as you would have an ambassador to every country, but then there are regional consul generals, of which you are one of. And um, if, you, if you wouldn't mind giving us a breakdown of how that works, and it seems to be, um, again, from kind of our outsider, but connected to this world perspective, that works a little differently than a lot of other, how other countries operate in the U.S. So I don't know if you'd mind uh, giving us an introduction to that. Sure. So um, we have an embassy in Washington, which is a, what um, where an embassy is is placed at the capital. And then we have a in the U.S. We have a eight consulates general um, that each cover a different region of the uh, of the United States. In our case, being situated in Atlanta, we cover seven states in the southeast. Um, but we have consulates in Miami, Boston, New York, LA, Chicago, San Francisco, Houston. And each consulate covers its area and promotes the bilateral relations on a state level in the states that we cover. Um, on on every level, be it a political, economic, cultural, academic, um, and each consulate being situated where it is has different uh, emphasis and um, and an adaptation of its goals according to where it sits and what the priorities are there. Sorry for asking, but is, is that unique in terms of are other countries using that model and 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 sort of deploying out across? the geography of, of the United States or, or, is, or is Israel kind of, uh, does Israel have more consulates than others? It would depend on the country and its interest with the United States. Um, and there are many different factors. It's economic interest, um, but also, uh, you know, how many of its citizens live in the United States and where are they concentrated? Um, in Atlanta, for example, there are um, about 25 uh, different consulates uh, based in Atlanta. Uh, you will find more of those obviously based in, uh, in New York and it varies. Some, some countries will have a similar number of consulates. Some will have even more depending really on their interests and, um, and who they are. You know, you can't compare uh, Mexico and its consulates and, and interest in the United States um, to, um, you know, to maybe a European country or, a, or an Asian country. It really depends. Okay. What, what kind of, how much of your work is, you said you, you, know, you work on the state level. I'm assuming you also work with you know, mayors of different cities. So kind of the political level, how much of it is promoting economic ties? How much of it is also, and this is kind of where I think Israel is in a unique capacity, uh, in a unique situation that you also have to do public diplomacy because of Israel itself being a very divisive political issue. So how much of your time is devoted to, to these kind, this kind of breakdown? Right, and a public diplomacy is not just about us being divisive. I think it's also about um, people being perhaps even less familiar uh, with what Israel is about. I'm saying perhaps even less familiar because it's not just about Israel, right? 
um, I think the younger generation today um, is a, is not really aware of what is going on in the world that is not directly to do with them. And so it's not just about a, being a, you know, a issue, political issues or others that are, that are making headlines. It's, it's also about um, sharing what Israel is about. And um, Israel is about so much more than the average person is exposed to through traditional media or social media. Um, I would say that, uh, that uh, we try to dedicate and allocate our, our time and resources to our political work, uh, economic work, public diplomacy, but in the end, everything is also intertwined, right? Because uh, uh, one, one has to do with the other. If, if we're promoting economic work, that is of interest to the political level as well. Sure. Um, uh, public diplomacy, if I have an issue, we currently have an issue now in a, at a university in our region uh, with um, um, a very uh, problematic uh, uh, course and lecturer uh, that is very anti-Semitic. That is something that it relates to the academic sphere. Uh, it relates to the Jewish world, but it relates also to the political world um, because it's something that I'm raising with a with a political level as well. So everything is sort of intertwined, and I think that that's also, in a way, the beauty of diplomacy that um, your different work and contact can um, um, complement one another um, in your work. Yeah, not if I may, uh, because I think what you brought up about the university issue is is actually it's a good segue into something else. But I also want to use it kind of as a as a as a case uh, to try to understand how things might might work. So, so you're the you're the consul general to to Atlanta to the southeast, based in Atlanta, and you know there are universities throughout the United States. I think something like forty thousand universities in your region. There might be I don't know four thousand. Yeah, sure, four thousand something. Various universities have issues. Uh, you know, we're living in, in difficult times, uh, you know, whatnot. How, how does it happen to fall upon your desk to know that there is an issue at a university? And how does it then become the, the diplomatic work of official Israel to deal with a professor on a campus? That's, a, it's an interesting, you know, it's interesting. And it, it really is interesting. Right. Um, so it's often not something that falls on our desk. It's about a um, being in, in a constant situation with our eyes wide open to what is going on around us and identifying where um, where do we do we want to or where do we need to intervene um, and when it comes to anti-semitism for example um, that is always uh, always something that that I that I see importance in so through through the regular contacts that that we have in the region, right, with different organizations, with communities, uh, we will hear about things that are going on. And I think uh, somebody somebody comes, calls you, they yeah, the, the students the, reach well, out and say, you know, I'm having a problem. I, you know, or I'm or they'll they'll see see me on on a on an email about something that is that is starting to emerge about something that is evolving. This case started about two weeks ago, and so we were looped in. But it's on on us um, to begin with to make ourselves relevant, because if we haven't proven to be relevant, then people are not going to loop us in. 
So that as well, it's a, it's a two-way street. And once we're looped in, I need to see from, from our perspective, from my perspective, mm -hmm. what, what can we do as a consulate, right? We're not a Jewish organization. Right. Uh, we're, not a, we're not a part of the academic world. Uh, what can we do? So in that kind of a case, what with and you don't have to talk about the details of that particular case, but in in a case like that, what what tools or what what actions might a consulate take? Well, we have a conversations. Diplomacy is a lot about talking in general, right. um, but we have conversations um, when we have an issue, a, any issue a, on a campus at a university then I will try to approach, begin with approaching the administration in order to have a conversation and understand what their thoughts are, what they are doing, what they intend to do, and convey the importance that we see in addressing the issue and suggest perhaps how it may be addressed. And then, we speak with other involved parties on the ground, be it a, a, a Jewish community or others. What I am um, trying to do um, on the issue of anti-Semitism is also involve non-Jewish parties because I feel that a, there is a, too much a, being put on the shoulders of the Jewish communities and the Jewish organizations when it comes to combating anti-Semitism, when it should be a broader responsibility. And so, um, how are how are how are other communities taking to that? I, well, I I can I can give you an example. One of the one of the things that we would like to promote in, in, on a state level is the adoption of the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism. That's the, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance um, working definition of anti-Semitism, which provides a very, very good uh, framework and understanding of what really falls under anti-Semitism, what constitutes anti-Semitism. And that is a very, very important basis for discussion uh, because often people will think, oh, well, I don't know, is this anti-Semitic, is it not? Um, so we would really like to see the definition adopted on a state level. Uh, obviously, the, the United States is a member country of IRA. The, the, the State Department, the Department of Education uh, have, uh, have adopted the working definition, but we would like to see that on a state level as well. It's, it's an important message, but also it provides um, a very good framework for having the right kind of conversation. If I recall, so, if I recall yeah. Anna, when that was introduced, a lot of kind of more progressive Jewish groups in the States had an issue with it because it seemed to take criticism of Israel that they are okay with. And that certainly, um, I, I think even on an official level, Israel doesn't discourage discussion about Israel or, or criticism about Israel. And, and it makes it seem that it's anti-Semitic. So, you know, well, I, I remember that discussion. How, how do you draw the line Um you know, on the one hand, you're representing a country, right? And and of course, you want to you want to do that to the best of your ability. But there are real issues involving Israel. There are certainly divisive issues. There's political issues. There's discrepancies, even among, you know, even among um, uh, the Jewish the Jewish diaspora in the U.S. Uh, and many who call themselves Zionist and, and call themselves Israel supporters have a lot of issues. So how how do you do your work 
and, and kind of also, you know, given given that, but specifically regarding this this um, I forget the acronym that you mentioned, IR. IRA. It's I H R A. I H R A. Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. So, how does how does that work with with that that conversation that was being had? I think it was last year. Whether you know criticism of Israel is considered anti-Semitism, yes or no, and then how how does that make you know how does that make your job even more challenging than it already is? Mm-hmm. Well, exactly as you mentioned, Dan. Um, we don't lack criticism in Israel. Um, I think it is one of the um, one of the things that we actually can take great pride in, uh, right? The the uh, not only the freedom of expression, but the fact that there there can be very very uh, um, um, significant criticism on both sides. Um, with whatever it is that Israel is doing, um, anti-Semitism uh, and the reference to Israel um, under that, it's not about a criticism of Israel's uh, policy um, like you can criticize any other nation. It's about singling Israel out. It's about treating Israel differently. It's about treating the nation state of the Jewish people differently than you would any other country and its policy on a, on this or that. And yes, there has been a criticism by some of this working definition, but I think that the working definition, it's important to say, first of all, it's, it's not a working definition that Israel came up with, right? It's an international organization. And the definition was agreed upon by, a, by a, the, the member countries but it provides also um, illustrations, examples, um, um, in order to really clarify what is about anti-Semitism and what is not. Yes, criticism, absolutely, absolutely legitimate. We engage in it all the time as Israelis, um, but uh, not legitimate when it is biased, when it is about singling Israel out, different than any other. A, any other country. A, and I will. Find, do you find people are receptive to that? Do you find, you know, when you approach um, the, the critics um, who, who you say, hey, listen, what you're doing is anti Semitic, uh, do you find people are willing to listen to that? Or, or you know, do they fall into the some of my best friends argument, you know, or even the I'm Jewish, I can't be possibly be anti Semitic? What, what is that? How does I that conversation? <laughs> you think, can, but yeah, what does that conversation look like? Yeah, I think too often there's an apprehension of a, making reference to anti-Semitism about using the word anti-Semitism, even by some in the Jewish community. But um, I think that's exactly the issue. It needs to be a legitimate part of the conversation. It can't be. Um, um, a part of every conversation, because obviously it's not always about anti-Semitism. But yes, if I'm speaking with a university administration about um, swastikas that were drawn on campus, and they're a... a that's just artistic expression in that. A, and their statement of condemnation, a, they did condemn, but they referred to hate, then I say that's not good enough. I this is not just hate. This is anti-Semitism and it needs to be called out. And that is true for any 
anti-Semitic incident. It needs to be called out for what it is because that's the, 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 the first step in really addressing things properly. It's not just about hate in general. It is something very, very specific. Okay. And I think that that is a, a, a that is a, a, on us, but also on others. So when I'm trying to promote the adoption of the IRA working definition on a state level, I approached my colleagues here in Atlanta, other consuls general of countries who themselves adopted the IRA working definition. And I asked them to make this ask together because it shouldn't be just the Jewish community or Israel that is promoting this. And indeed, that is how we made the approach uh, to the different states in our region on behalf right. of seven uh, consulates, not just the Israeli consulate. Uh, I, I find it very interesting, uh, the concept of having a working definition of, of, of a problem like anti-Semitism. Uh, and I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why, what I mean. We as Jews, we can sometimes say amongst ourselves, and, and, and our Jewish listeners, listeners may or may not agree with this, but some, you know, we know when we're talking with an anti-Semite. We know we, there's, an, there's an innate sense, I think, that many of us have when, when, we, when we're talking to somebody who does not like us as Jews. There's something where you can somehow just, just feel it. And I, and I think that if you're looking at other, other communities, other marginalized communities, other minority communities that suffer from discrimination or discover, that suffer from racism, if I take, for example, uh, African-Americans, uh, you know, there is no working definition of racism against the black community. They don't need a, they, they don't have a written, you know, an, an agreed upon definition of what, you know, anti-black racism is. It's, there's anti-black racism. Why do we, you know, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's some sort of an agreed upon, you know, document or something, but I don't know if any other community has to put in writing how they define hate against their community and then bring that to an accord status with other countries and other communities to say, let's all agree these are standards of what this means and then let's work against it. And I think that that's, there is something unique about that. I don't know, I haven't thought about it, what that means about the problem itself, that it has to be defined and agreed upon that others maybe find it less of an issue or less of something that is, or maybe it's more gray that we need to outline what the nuances are. But it is interesting nonetheless for me to reflect on the fact that I do not know of any other marginalized or minority community around the world that has a document uh, that that outlines what hate against them looks like. And, and I don't know. I, I think, what do you guys think about that? Well, uh, let me let me throw kind of answer it and then spin it into a question here. Um, we have it seems we have a discrepancy within our own community, Benny, um, certainly within the American Jewish community about what is anti-Semitic and what is not. And, and, and this might get to clearly. The, and, and this might get to the to the reason why you know we we joke we like to say you know put put two Jews on a deserted island and they'll build three synagogues so that they can you know they they both have something to boycott or you know whatever right whatever that is um we, we, you know we can't agree often on a lot of these things and you have many Jews um still today who who don't think there is a justification for an ethno nationalist state. And what they'll say is they don't think there's a justification for any ethno-national state. Um, right. And certainly if it has to, you know, uh, commit uh, human rights abuses, et cetera, in order to remain uh, a state. And that's where their criticism comes from. They say we're not being anti-Semitic. We're, you know, living up to our values. Um, I personally don't agree with that. But, but, but that's where they're coming from. And 
you know, it, it, it's a tricky place to try to put this into a debate and, and say what is anti-Semitic, what is not. You also have it, it gets even more complicated because, you know. But is that then coming from a place where the Jews shouldn't have self-determination or no people around the world should have self-determination? Because if the discussion yeah. is, a, is specifically about the Jewish state, right. then then I think that's exactly the issue, right? Because usually it's not a discussion about people's in general and people's rights to self-determination in general. The The discussion is usually very, very specific. It's about the Jewish people's right, right to self-determination. Or, 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 if, or if it's somebody that says, well, I don't just single out Israel. I, you know, I, would, I would say no, no ethnic national group has right. you know, the right to self-determination. I would say to that person, do you do you speak out against the Italian state? Do you right. speak out about the French state or the Chinese state? I mean, these are all ethno-national states. So, I don't so, hear. So that's where that's you know, where you, the, you're speaking about those countries. That's where the criticism doesn't hold up. To, that that's where the practice doesn't hold up to the theory because you will hear those people say, "I'm against all all ethno-national states," but they're only protesting against one. And and, and sure, we're one of the few that's in an ongoing conflict. Um, which which I want to use to get to another point later on. But, you know, something that came up in the recent Pew study on American Jewry, uh, I thought this was interesting and relevant to this, is that uh, Jews who vote Republican and Jews who vote Democrat, which is about 70-30 in the U.S. context, just so people who are 70% vote Democrat, 30% vote Republican, um, perceived the level of anti-Semitism in the U.S. at about the same rate. What was interesting is that those who voted Republican did not perceive the same levels of discrimination against other minorities as did Jews who vote Democrat, which leads me to understand this, that some certain kinds of Jews, and it's those who are more on the conservative side politically, perceive anti-Semitism to be distinct distinctly against Jews, where others see it in a wider societal context of xenophobia and racism. And I thought that's interesting um, to see that reflected in the numbers. Um, it, we were talking about partnerships earlier. And something that struck me that I don't know if other people are doing it is you had an interesting uh, staff member on your team on that um, to, to do outreach. I'd be glad if you could talk about that a little bit and how you're working in, in that whole team concept that you put together. Right. So I mentioned that um, our different consulates in the U.S. are, are located in different areas and each has its own uh, emphasis based on where it sits. And for an Atlanta-based consulate, I think that one of the uh, most important priorities is our work and outreach with the African-American community. And because Atlanta is in many ways um, the beating heart of the African-American community in the United States. Um, and there is, of course, a, a, a significance to that community beyond Atlanta, but also beyond its size mm -hmm. in, a, in terms of public discourse, a political, a, a, a political discourse, etc. And so arriving into, a, into Atlanta and knowing that this is a field that I want to a, a, a strengthen our relations in, a, 
I knew that it's not something that, um, that we could do only as outsiders. And so very early on, uh, I, um, I recruited a, a team member, uh, Wendell, um, from the African-American community, uh, from a leading uh, HBCU uh, a college, historically black colleges and universities. In this case, it was a Morehouse College in Atlanta. And that has proven to be very, very important and beneficial in allowing us to connect well, to begin with, first of all, understanding, uh, because there's a lot to learn, and then uh, um, understanding how, how we can connect and what we can actually do together with this very important uh, community. And that is something that, uh, that we've worked to, uh, to build and strengthen over the last, uh, over the last two years. Um, I thought that was phenomenal, and it took me a second you know, again, my own biases. It took me a second to understand that he worked for you and that he didn't work for, because we met him for the first time at the the Center for Civil and Human Rights, which is related to the African-American rights movement, uh, civil rights movement. And um, he was, you know, he met us there and he gave us a tour. And so it took me a second to, again, disassociate from my own just assumption that, oh, he, he works for the consulate. He doesn't work for the for the Center for Human Rights, but he works as this so you instituted that position that didn't exist before. Right. So, well, it's not that I, frankly, it's not that I created a new position at the consulate. Um, I had an opening. It was an opening for a PR position. And I worked hard to convince him that he was the right person uh, for that position. And through that, really, our work, uh, our work evolved. But uh, yes, I think it has to do about intentionality in what we in what we are doing you know it's it's not about coming across and then is something and and yes or no working out and it's also not about a you know the 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 face of diversity it's about being intentional and real in what are my goals how do how do we best achieve them in and so um, after arriving in Atlanta, a few days into my arrival, I, one of the first meetings that I held in Atlanta was going to meet with a Morehouse College president, David Thomas. And I went to meet with him because um, um, I wanted to also convey the message that this is an important priority for the consulate and for the consulate's work. Uh, and since then, I'm glad that they that we have managed to really build this relationship. Um, but that is where I first met Wendell. And, and I think that's, that is true really for any um, audience and community that you want to connect with. Uh, to have the conversation from the inside is very, very different than having it from the outside. It's different also when we are approaching, you know, when we wanna do, a, do an event, when we wanna have a meeting, it is a it opens doors in a very very different way yeah and, and i noticed um and it's phenomenal and, and i noticed again from my brief interaction it, it, he, he didn't seem like he was a tokenized member of the team it, like you said it felt incredibly authentic um the, the that he was speaking from the perspective um from, from the perspective of a very important community in america marginalized a long marginalized community of america um, and, and so I think it's phenomenal that, that you decided to, to bring him onto your team and to try to build this bridge. You know, 
over the past couple of years, especially, we've seen, I, I, how can I describe this, Benny? You know, kind of a resurgence or maybe a spike of of tensions, uh, certainly racial tensions in America um, between the African American and and the broader community. Um, you know, the George uh, Floyd murder and, and um, you know the, the kind of the Black Lives movement. Yeah. Um, and, and then a lot of people in the Jewish community in America were kind of taken aback because the Jewish community, at least in America, has memories of being an integral part of the civil rights. Right. right. And in the Jewish community, and you could have seen this from the Jewish press, it, it seems like did people forget that we marched alongside, you know, right. Martin Luther King Jr. What it, happened? It's, it's I'll say it like this. I was in Minneapolis in, or this is an example of that, I guess. I was in Minneapolis where I'm from and not uh, in July. And I went to, uh, there's, there's an area where the, where the murder of George Floyd took place has become a, uh, a shrine basically where people have left messages. There's all kinds of protest uh, uh, art and, and sculpture and all kinds of just interpretive information that's, that's all over the place. Uh, but I have, you know, and I lived in that city for, you know, 18 years. I've never seen more free Palestine graffiti in any other location ever uh, outside of, you know, here <laughs> in, in the land of Israel, you mm -hmm. know, visiting like the security barrier or something like it's all over the place. It's been written all over the thing. I saw there was a there was a picture of Martin Luther King and it said on it, free Palestine with the Palestinian flag. And, and I'm looking at it and I'm just, you know, I. If I'm an alien and I'm dropped in here, okay, and I don't know anything about anything, and I'm looking at the context of what I'm looking at here, and then George Floyd and, and racial issues in the United States, you know, what what does Palestine have to do with this? You know, what is the connection here between this and that? And I think that's a very, it's not an innate connection that one can easily understand. But when you're in it and you are a, you know, I, I'll say a normative, younger, adult American progressive person. There is a very deep connection where one can, in their narrative or in their understanding of events, tie a connection between white supremacism, colonialism, imperialism, the Jewish state, Jews, black issues in the United States, slavery. Like it's almost like there's a different reality and there's a different narrative. And I and I kind of take my hat off to, to you and, and people like Wendell and others that it's like you're fighting this fight, which, you know, it's 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 a battle of ideas. It's not a battle of, it, it's, you're trying to win a narrative. And I don't know in this, you know, to reach that generation is very challenging. I don't understand how it's done. You know, I, 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 I agree. There's a very significant challenge there, but I, I'm not sure that it's really about a battle of ideas. The battle is really trying to a, a, uncover what is a false parallel uh, because it is an agenda driven a uh, parallel supposed parallel that is being made um, uh, by those attempting to bash israel right. um, and i think it's often a, a, a just about having the conversation the broader conversation the context and not a, it's the conversation is not about Israel is wonderful and everything that you've been told is not true. Yes, there is a conflict going on in Israel, absolutely. But it really does have nothing at all 
to do with the racial issues of the United States. Right. right. Um, and um, and I think that um, yes, um, there there uh, there is a shared history of Jews standing together with African Americans in the civil rights movement. Um, but that too has eroded over time. And I think that uh, both communities need to do better in reconnecting um, because it is, um, it is a mutual interest. Uh, just like uh, the, the Jews can't and won't be able to combat anti-Semitism on their own. It is true also for racism. It is true really for, for any group that is the target of hate and yeah. discrimination. Um, and um, um, what we do is try to um, educate not only about the shared history um, and its importance, but the relevance today, the relevance and the importance today of standing one for, a, for another and educating, yes, educating about Israel, about what Israel is about, um, because it is a very, very different story than the United States. Um, the United States has its issues. Israel has its own issues, just like any other country. Um, but it, it is not about a parallel between the issues and the right. racial issues specifically here in the United States and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right. in this, right. in this I, I think I think that in this, that in the context of that, and maybe this is something that I'll say, and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't expect you to say it, but it's, it's, it's almost like there's a, there's a willful ignorance on the part of many people to try to dig deeper and understand nuanced facts and to get an education that's proper and based on reality and truth. And I think that there are nefarious actors that sometimes take advantage of that dynamic within a certain generation or within any generation in, in this social media, you know, uh, uh, mobile time that we live in. And I don't think that people, I think that people's eyes are not as opened as, as they could be as to, you know, how are these narrative contexts being woven? You know, who's designing them? You know, who's, who's out there promoting a narrative of Israel as a white supremacist colonialist state? You know, I would hear that and I would say, wait, I want to, why, how? You know, and I think that there's a lot of people who kind of just say, yeah, okay, cool. That's well, what that, the zeitgeist is. And I, right. I guess I'll go there. That, that's exactly what's happening, though. I, I had a discussion literally a few days ago with a woman who is a Jewish educator with a master's degree in you know Jewish and Israel studies. And, and this is literally what she does professionally. And she was coming at me with all of these accusations and claims saying, you know, she's ready to give up on Israel because of the reality and because of the Gaza war. And, and I was like, I, I don't understand. I, I couldn't even start to unpack where she's coming from, and this is someone who's supposed to be a lot more educated, who's lived in Israel, who, who speaks a you know decent Hebrew, um, uh, and you know I couldn't understand where where this was coming from. Um, you know, by the way, wh th that whole kind of message and, and the connecting the trying to connect the black story in America to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is something that groups are doing purposefully. Right. Um, and, and they're trying, they, they are sneaking in there. And what you're saying, Benny, it, it's true. A lot of people today, you know, they're not trained. They're not trained to, to peek behind the curtain and see who's crafting these messages. Um, and, and so today's, you, you know, whether you're talking about ideological actors um, 
or whether you're talking about nefarious state actors. We know Russia, we know China, Iran, Turkey are all, you know, kind of trying to sow all this kind of disinformation just to weaken Western society. You know, these these are things that we know from from intelligence agencies and things like that. Um, but but the whole this was interesting. And one of the side conversations I had with uh, Wendell and not done on, you know, when we were going around um, and, and actually I had the pleasure of meeting other young African-Americans who are doing different collaborations with the Jewish community. And, and either they work for Jewish, Jewish organizations or they work for, uh, you know, to, to promote African-American society, but they are in these kind of uh, collaborative places. And I was trying to get an understanding of, you know, if you live in Israel or if you live in kind of the the more insular parts of the American Jewish community, you would get an assumption that African-Americans have become anti-Semitic, whether passively or actively in the last couple of years. And there were some incidents of well-known African-Americans who, who said some things um, on the air or who retweeted anti-Semitic things or who retweeted, you know, follow Louis Farrakhan. And um, it, might, it might have been Wendell, but he explained to me that maybe a third of the African-American community is anti-Semitic and kind of has been caught up in these beliefs and this thinking. And so there is, there is an important need to reach out to them. Maybe a third is actually very pro-Israel um, and maybe comes from the more evangelical communities. And then maybe a third is just kind of, you know, they don't really care. It's not what they think about. They certainly have plenty of their own problems and they don't need to be thinking about Israel. And I found that interesting because, you know, um, if you're looking at this, again, from an Israeli lens, if you were watching, and, and, you know, Benny, this goes to your point, we have to constantly read the news. We have to look at our Facebook feeds, understanding the biases of everything it is we're reading, whether people are doing it intentionally or not. So if I, if, and this is something that you, you constantly have to be aware of and unpack, um, if your Facebook feed is 70% Israeli Jews or 80% American Jews, you're, you're going to see of one view of reality that right. is only true, you know, through but, a very specific. Correct. And, and, and you and I and, and, are able, of it. And, and the three of us are able to entertain that conversation about how Facebook works because we right. understand how social media dynamics function and we understand that sure. we, we talk about the concepts of echo bubbles and we talk echo chambers sorry and we talk about the concepts of you know uh algorithmic uh breakdown of information and we we constantly talk about uh, how there are no more gatekeepers to information in the media and it's the democratization of of of, of information leads information, to right leads to uh you know sort of information funnels and whatnot i don't know if the average person thinks about that. I think they open their Facebook feed and they think to themselves, oh, I, I haven't heard from these friends in a while. I wonder why that is. And then they'll, you know, repost these. You see them from time to time. It's kind of like, you know, repost this and, you know, Facebook, uh, you know, <laughs> Facebook's going to institute this new thing. And if you repost this, it's like, all right, you don't get it. But it's, it's, it, I, I think that that's the way it is. And I don't know how, you know, it, it seems and it feels sometimes, and I'm sure that this is something that not you felt in many, in many cases doing diplomacy, that there are times and there are issues where it feels like you're trying to empty out the ocean using a, using, using a, a coffee mug or something like that. The ocean's coming in the, the window and, and you gotta sort of you know, take it out and this is all you got. 
And I think that the social media dynamic is one is, is, is a place like that. I don't know how you effectively, without government regulation and oversight, you know, negate the effects that nefarious influencers might have on, you know, one's world and, and, and social media. And the more people engage with that and receive their information only from that, the more place that a, that a nefarious regime like the one in Tehran or or the one in North Korea or in China or, or wherever might have to to affect public this Russia, of course, to to affect public discourse. Um, and I think that it's unfortunate that that spread to the to the sphere of anti-Semitism. And I and I and I obviously applaud the efforts that people that are you know on the ground in the United States, such as yourself, are able to to do with uh, with communities, because I think that they're you know you can't really. Uh, you, there is no substitute for face-to-face -face encounter and engagement. Uh, How do you deal with that today, Anat? This whole challenge? Well, I think uh, that alongside the fact that absolutely we need to be present on social media, and I think that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is well aware of that, uh, um, and, uh, and we have, of course, you know, on different platforms, we have, we have uh, channels and engagements in different languages, uh, um, including Arabic, Persian, et cetera. Um, and our different missions are active on social media. Um, yes, I think that alongside the fact that we need to be present there, it is not just about social media and we need to remember that. And I think, yes, it does matter when you have the conversations outside of social media, when you are targeting people who can then spread the message, uh, when you are reaching beyond your natural networks, which is why it is important. It is important to, 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 to reach and have conversations, in our case, within the Jewish community, because even within the Jewish community, many are not familiar with necessarily with the, with the history or the facts or the context, but it's very, very important to reach out beyond our natural networks yeah. into other communities and specifically into communities that are constantly being fed um, um, lies um, and, um, and distortions of the situation. It is very important to do so in a very honest way um, um, because once it is perceived to be ingenuine, then, then you've lost everything. Yeah. But, um, but um, these honest conversations are important to have. It's important to have the conversations, which I find surprise people outside the Jewish community and even inside the Jewish community when when I explain for example that um, you know there's this whole notion of you're either pro-Israeli or you're pro-Palestinian um, you can be both and in a way you must be both if you really want to see the two meet um, it is not about um, um, not being able to be both pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli, it's about how not to be anti right. the other. Um, and that is what is important. Yes, uh, uh, by all means, uh, be anti-terror, be anti-extremism. Um, but I think both sides have to be pro the other side because that's the only way we will ever be able to meet. And um, and often when I, when I explain that the the interest of the Palestinians is an Israeli interest. It's an Israeli interest to see the Palestinians thrive. Um, that that takes people by by surprise. Right. 
Um, and I think that um, it's part of having that broader conversation that is beyond, you know, this uh, image or tweet or whatever it is on the on social media. How, I'm going to try to phrase this question carefully because it could be interpreted as one of two ways and I don't want it to go the other way. Obviously, beyond being a, a diplomat or a representative of a government, you're a human being and, and you have your own political views. And, and, and I'm sure every single Israeli diplomat or any diplomat in the world has their political views. How much harder does it make your job if and when you significantly disagree with the government policy that you're constantly, let, let's just assume, I don't know what your politics are and it doesn't matter for the sake of this conversation, but let's just assume, um, and, and I know the Israeli foreign ministry has long had a reputation of people being generally more to the left of the political spectrum than to the right, although I don't know if that's true anymore. But considering Israel, Israel's governments have been more to the right in recent years and in the past you know, few decades, um, how much harder does that make your job to defend policies you might disagree with? And more importantly, on, on, on the issue that's always being brought up, and that's, of course, the Palestinian issue that we just talked about, we don't really have a coherent policy here. So you know, whether you agree with this policy or that policy, how do you defend a policy that there isn't a well-defined policy to defend? Um, you know, people can make very valid criticisms or accusations and you don't have, you know, you could say, well, this politician wants this and that politician wants that. And this has been kind of the de facto policy, but there's no set policy that you can really say, this is the policy I now have to defend as an Israeli diplomat. How, how do you work in such a, what we'll call it, um, um, how would you say that in uh, the field of uncertain diplomatic uncertainty? How do you work in such a field? Well, you have you you ask a broader question and then a more a more specific question. Yeah. Um, with regards to the broader question, um, it's something that often is asked, probably of diplomats in in general. Sure. Um, the Israeli Foreign Service is not a political one. Right. We are professional diplomats. Um, and as such, obviously, we represent um, not only the government of the day, but also if, you know, the country and the people uh, in general. I have to say very honestly, um, I've been with the Israeli Foreign Service for about 17 years now. Um, I have never found it a challenge, no matter who was in government, because that is what Israel is about. It's a democracy. And like any democracy, sometimes uh, sometimes uh, uh, these are in power, sometimes these are in power. And when it comes to Israel's core strategic interests, I think that people often don't realize that there is actually very little, little difference between the different, uh, um, the different political, uh, political parties. Yes, there are obviously differences, but addressing the issue of a, 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 the Iranian threat, addressing right. Israel's security threats and interests, there is actually very little difference um, um, when it comes to uh, to right wing or to 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 left wing. There are new nuances, of course, and there are many many differences when it comes to internal Israeli matters. Sure. Um, with regards to um, to the the Israeli Palestinian conflict, 
Um, yes, there have been differences in messaging over the years, uh, depending on what, um, what the government was uh, and what the specific policy was. But there is always, always a common thread, right? Uh, when I refer to our Declaration of Independence of 1948, and Israel's very clear statement that our hand is extended in peace to all our neighbors, that remains true today, no matter who is in government. What that solution will look like and when that will be feasible with regards to the Palestinians, yes, there's a broader conversation to be had to be had, but it's not one that is um, irrelevant for this or that government. There is a complicated political situation. Uh, there have been different solutions, proposed solutions on the table over the years. And- But you, you, I mean, you have a government right now, or you have a prime minister, not a government, a prime minister whose views on this differ significantly from even his own alternate prime minister. Right. And again, I, I know you can't you can't say probably what you really, really think on this. And that's right. Fine. But 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 whether it's the, the prime minister or the foreign minister or the previous prime minister. Yeah. Um, these are not elected officials that do not want to see a resolution to the conflict. What that resolution looks like. Yes, it differs according to to who you ask and according also to to what is the current situation. Uh, in the Palestinian world as well. Um, but it is not that any Israeli figure, well, the large majority of Israeli political figures and otherwise the broader society, it is not that people do not want to see a resolution to this conflict. Um, no, I think for that, sure, for sure. It just, um, you know, it there's just, a difference it when you say, when it, you it say looks, two-state solution versus, you know, not two-state solution. That That's a huge huge policy discrepancy that I think would be unacceptable to many parts of the world. And so that's got to make your job a lot harder, um, you know, beyond saying something like, well, yes, we all want to see the conflict resolved. But, you know, you you have, again, the, the current prime minister has long said he doesn't want to see a two-state solution. He's against it. He's against the, the concept of an independent Palestinian state, which is at least where the majority of the international opinion is. And so that's uh, you know, I'm just thinking that that's got to make the the lives of people in your position very difficult when you don't know exactly what policy it is that you're supposed to be representing or defending. And, you know, when some of the accusations coming against Israel kind of work on that line of, well, you never you're you're not actively seeking to end the conflict because you're not putting out realistic situations there. And And, and I didn't want to take this conversation into... I, I didn't want to go in the direction of this policy or that policy because that you know it's kind of more of a theoretical discussion of how you how you do your job in such a situation. It just seems to me very difficult to do beyond the answer that you gave. Um, and again, I, I understand if you don't want to if if you don't want to say anything beyond that. Um, I'm just not not sure what you do with that um, or you know with the kind of the discussion, for example, that I had with with the you know the the jewish professional that said she's about ready to give up on israel something that i've actually had a lot with and and i've 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 kind of been ongoing a process in recent years 
where, you know, I've had to say to myself, we've, you know, me at least, and maybe people of our generation kind of grew up with this certain paradigm of, you know, what the end of the conflict would look like. And, and it hasn't worked. And you can, you know, it doesn't matter who you're blaming for why it hasn't worked, but it hasn't worked. And you have a significant portion of the country, uh, probably the majority of this country, saying that's never going to work. We need to look at new models. And part of me and kind of part of the process of, of what we've done in this show also is to say, you know what, maybe I need to be a lot more humble and say, we totally need to scrap everything we've tried until now and look at something new. And I don't know what that would look like. And I kind of said that to her, honestly, I, I don't know what that would look like. I think it's a, 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 you say that, that many people now can't see it. Possibly it's true for any conflict prior to the resolution of that conflict. If you had pulled the Israeli people and the Egyptian people in 1977, prior to then Egyptian President Anwar Sadat visiting Israel and speaking at the Knesset, and asked them what the probability is in their in their eyes of a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, I'm pretty sure that the answer would be very different than after his visit to to Israel. Yes, when reality when reality changes, uh, uh, perceptions change change as well. And so, I don't I don't know that it's really fair fair to say. Well, the majority of the people don't see. Yes, the majority of the people. What they're seeing now is that they're being attacked and they're being threatened. Um, and so, I think it's 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 natural, maybe, to not feel secure in saying, oh, yes, we can reach an agreement with these people. Mm. But for that to be off the table, I think, uh, you know, history and even Israel's, the state of Israel, the modern state of Israel's short history has proven um, that um, even when it seems to be a, an impossibility, it can become a reality. And I think that that is, that is true. Uh, with regards to the Palestinians as well, what that resolution will look like exactly, I don't know. That's exactly that's exactly the issue of there uh, having to be direct negotiations between yep. the two sides. We all know that there have been different formulas on the table. Um, and yes, it will take leadership on both sides to reach an agreement. Uh, but I, uh, and I, I hear Israelis as well as others saying, "Oh, we don't see we don't see any uh, any prospect for peace." Uh, I don't ascribe to that uh, perspective personally. I think it's it's difficult sometimes to see from the very specific situation that you're in. But um, um, we do know that both left wing governments in Israel and right wing governments in Israel have uh, um, have made attempts at resolving uh, this conflict. And uh, I, I believe being a mutual interest, um, we, will, uh, we will at some point uh, see a resolution, hopefully sooner rather than later. Do you think, um, last question on this issue, and then Benny wanted to move on, move, move back to the United States. You know, you facilitated our delegation coming over from Shiraka where part of what we're trying to do is kind of take advantage of this social media age. You know, Benny, you talked about democratization of information. It's a term that 
I use a lot. It's a term that we use a lot on this show. Um, and, and it's a double-edged sword. You know, it's got a lot of advantages also. Um, and part of what we're trying to do, and I think part of what is possible today is, is we can bypass state-controlled media. We can bypass governments and we can talk directly to people. And, you know, I'm trying to spread this idea of normalization of friendly ties between between Israel and the countries of the region. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, and I think it's actually contrary to what you said, Benny, where it's like trying to empty um, the ocean with a coffee cup. I'm actually a lot more optimistic of what it is possible to achieve via social media today, where it's actually possible to even create the impression to create actual momentum and the impression of momentum, which are two different things um, of, of an online movement of, of societal shifts. And this is a, a place where perception becomes reality. And, you know, the Abraham Accords came about, I don't know who, uh, you know, I'd be glad to hear your take on this also. How much were you expecting it to come about? How much were you expecting it to, to move as fast as it did? And do you see the possibility of, of actually changing perceptions and using social media and being able to connect to younger people? Um, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on those two connected issues? I think that, well, this has been in the, the representatives from, a, from Sharaka addressed this as well. The Abraham Accords have been building up for some time, for some time now. And yet, I think that I was very pleasantly surprised to see the rate at which uh, the relations are actually uh, proceeding, uh, uh, which is, of course, as we know, very different from uh, um, from our previous uh, previous experiences. Um, because it's a different it's a different context, it's a different time, and um, and it's now at the point where it's more and more of an accumulation. Right, it's not just one country uh, establishing relations with the state of Israel uh, from from the Arab world. It's now more and more that are joining, and I think that 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 will have a growing effect. We are seeing it already having a growing a uh, effect, and I think that that is true for on the ground. It's it's most certainly true for um for um, media and social media as well. And we are seeing actually, um, um, and my colleagues from the from the ministry who deal with this will be able to better address this. But we are seeing a lot of interest in the Arab world, in our social media ch channels, True. even from from countries True. with whom we do not have relations. Yeah. Um, our Persian language, uh, social social media coming from Israel. It's mostly people in LA that are just reading that. Don't get excited. <laughs> Uh, we are receiving a lot of visibility uh, in in the social media from the Arab uh, from the Arab world, um, and that is you know that is as a government. Uh, I think that organizations like Sharaka are doing the incredibly important work of really connecting on the ground the non officials. Um, and uh, appreciate that plug for sure. <laughs> uh, no, it's a really it's your I, show, man. You can uh, plug us yourself anytime you want. I think I know, that but... uh, I think that it is of incredible, incredible value. I, I felt I felt very energized uh, during that delegation and the 
the um, reception we received and the the jaws that dropped when you know kind of hearing this narrative it was, it was really cool it was really cool to bring that and we just we hope we could keep uh we can keep doing that and Who i think and i think a, a you know an example i i referred earlier to to the need to 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 break away from our natural networks and you know our natural audiences and i think that um, such delegations are an excellent opportunity because, um, um, well, not only, of course, did we have the encounters that we had here in a, here in Atlanta with different audiences, including with a, a leadership from the African American community, but following that, because we had um, one of the participants in the African American leadership event here, Sharaka speak. That is how Omar from the delegation was then invited to speak at a different conference right. for African-American leadership. And I think that that is exactly how we break away into new circles. Absolutely. Shout out to Omar Al-Busaidi. That's right. I think he's, he was listening at least to parts of this. I think he was this. too. Uh, I, I want to just bring it back real quickly. And I think uh, going back you know, stateside uh, issues in the States, your, I don't think people realize this. Your, your region is 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 pretty big. I mean, it's it's kind of massive. I think you got Georgia. Let me let me see if I get this right. North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, and Mississippi. That's exactly right. You passed the test. That's like a quarter hey, can of. Can you join your team? <laughs> yeah, that's like a quarter. Of, right, looking for a job. That's like a quarter of the U.S. landmass, basically. Uh, in terms of the geography of the United States, it is a massive, it's, it's almost the entire South. If you take away, you know, Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, you know, the Oklahoma's the not Western the South. South. Well, you could ask people in Oklahoma, they might disagree with you on that. Uh, but it's a diverse region. I mean, it's diverse in people, it's diverse in interests, it's diverse, you know, the South is not just like this, this, this monolithic, the South, it's, it's very different wherever you go. And of course, you know, you guys have realized that also having a different consulate in, in Florida, because Florida is a whole other animal, uh, literally and figuratively. It's, it seems like there's just so much in terms of where Israel can relate to in, 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 such, a, in such a, you know, unique and diverse region such as the South. Do you, in your job, get to leave Atlanta and travel around to the other states Absolutely. in the region? Absolutely. So COVID, of course, has a, as the challenges that is, has provided in every, in every aspect of life, a, professionally as well. So that has a, had a significant impact also on the ability to travel. But yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's a, it's a key component um, of not only of what we do, a, I think in general, um, working just in the Zoom environment, that really does in many ways contradict what diplomacy is about because diplomacy is about making those personal relations. It's the personal interactions. It is the face-to-face. -face. You know, in a Zoom environment, you get on a call and if someone is late by two minutes, they're already apologizing for being late. And after maybe one minute of niceties, and I'm saying maybe because it can be like 20 seconds of niceties, you get to it, you get to the point, right? Right. And, and, that's, and that's not counting all the time that you're spent telling, you know, Nancy over here in the corner that she's muted. And like, you know, this one's camera's not on. Um, so advantages to using this medium as well, right? We can have events uh, where we include um, a 
students from throughout the region. We can have speakers uh, without having the necessity to bring them in. They can be speaking from Israel, from anywhere else. There are advantages, and I'm sure that many of those we will retain even post-COVID, wherever that is in the future. Um, but the ability to really connect on a personal level with people, I think, is also about being there in person. And it is something that uh, we we aim to do as much as much as possible. What? Wait, wait, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm ask if you have a favorite state. Be non-diplomatic for a moment and, and tell me if you have a personal. They are all favorites. Uh, no, seriously, I will say that um, the United States, of course, is not one one unit in its characteristics. And I think that here in the Southeast, we are incredibly fortunate to have overall very, very strong support for Israel um, an understanding of the importance of the relations, of the mutual benefit of the relations. And I think in that we are uh, incredibly fortunate. Um, but there are also, of course, unique challenges that, um, that need addressing in this, uh, in this region. We, we, Omar is listening, by the way, and he uh, sends a shout out to both of you. Uh, Omar has become my, my Emirati brother from another mother, for sure. Um, I think a, an incredible, an incredible asset, really, in, in in conveying what peace is about, what peace can look like, and what it what it means. I agree. I agree. I, I have a, a, a three pack um, of your experience in the American Southeast. What meeting message question, whatever it is you want to take. Um, what has one experience that shocked you the most, surprised you the most? Um, what has been your biggest singular challenge um, so far in this position? Um, and I mean a specific challenge, maybe um, something that really threw you for a loop, a meeting, again, a question, a protest. I don't know what it, what it, whatever it is. And what would you say is the biggest highlight so far of your your experience as consul general? I, I always love these well, open-ended questions. Um, I think uh, I think that uh, one of the advantages in in diplomacy and in this career is that you are in a constant state of of learning, um, because you arrive to a different to to a new position to a new location, and you need to be very very open uh, in in learning. And I've, I've, I feel like over the past two years here, which is not a long time. I've learned a lot. And I think that um, um, while I um, identified early on the importance of working with the African-American community, there are, a, there are many things that took me, that took me by surprise, um, including really the, um, um, from, from our perspective, uh, how little many know about what Israel is, what Israel is about, and how it is how it is viewed, but also what we don't know, right? I arrived here, and and someone mentioned Juneteenth, and I had no idea what that is, mm-hmm. um, and it was you know it's 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 a celebration of of a pretty significant issue. 
and yet I was not familiar with it being an Israeli. And I think that that's, um, it, it's an eye opener and an example of, of, um, of how much we all still have to learn. And I think that ties also into a, the most significant challenge. I think that the most significant challenge as I view it um, is not about dealing with the anti, it's about dealing with, with the ignorance, with, with those who just don't know um, and, um, and I think that that, that is a significant challenge that will remain, uh, will remain um, in the foreseeable future, the most significant challenge for us, for, for Israel in general. Um, what was the biggest highlight so far, a singular highlight, um, maybe an experience, a meeting, um, th that you've had was of this, of this specific job? It was discovering Waffle House. Pop no. Chicken. <laughs> Um, well, it might, it might I, not be related to your work. It just might be related to living in Atlanta. I don't know. No, I think I, I think really many highlights. I think that that's um, that's part of having um, um, the joy in in this career and in this way of life is that you're enthusiastic and you enjoy the things that you do and the outcomes that uh, that that you see. Um, and so. I can think of I can think of really many uh, many such positive, but I mentioned Juneteenth for example. So um, one of the recent highlights uh, for me is that um, following the fact that not only was I not aware of the existence of Juneteenth and what it means, um, I also saw uh, observed around me uh, a reluctance by many to recognize Juneteenth mm. to celebrate Juneteenth. Right? It's only become an official federal holiday. Um, just uh, um, just now, um, and so we initiated um, a Juneteenth celebration event um, in cooperation with a, a with a Georgia Legislative Black Caucus, um, and I approached my fellow consuls general again uh, because I see power in messaging that is coming on behalf of the international community. And I offered for them to join us in a Juneteenth and hosting a Juneteenth celebration. And I'm glad that nine of them did. So we were 10 consulates in Atlanta, uh, representatives of the international community celebrating with the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus and African-American leadership celebrating Juneteenth. And it was um, such a unique and unexpected event, right? Because it's not about the African-American community celebrating Juneteenth on its own, that it was received with a lot of appreciation and actually requests for it to become an annual event. And so, um, um, and it's not directly Israel related, right? Um, but it's, um, it's an opportunity for Israel to initiate and, and be part of of something of something bigger and and an important message i think so one example and i think it's it's great that you know you, you may have mentioned this to me when we were walking around uh atlanta that it's not about always promoting israel but you know you have to get involved in in celebrating or remembering or commemorating or you know that's how you build alliances that's how you build relationships and i think it's fantastic how you did that um all right, let's, uh, if we wrap up with two questions, uh, one, do you know, do you already know 
what your next posting is going to be? Or if you don't, what would you want it to be? I do not know. And I think that um, it's part of what I love about this career that I don't know. You like the uncertainty? I, I, I find it personally depressing <laughs> if I were to be in a situation where I could tell you where I'm going to be and what I'm going to be doing five or 10 years from now. To me, that's depressing. I love the fact that I don't know where I'm going to be and what I'm going to be doing five years from now, 10 years from now. I think that's Benny's having without mentioning names. Are there countries for you where it's like if there's a red line, which is like if they tell me that I'm going here, no. Well, what would be your dream job? Well, I wouldn't really be told where I'm going again because they, because we choose to apply and then we either get or don't get what what we're applying for. Would you like not apply for countries that are like very cold most of the year or very hot or it's like are there, are there certain just general preferences of where you want to live and what climate or what, you know, I, I, I really try to, yeah, I try to stay away, try, try to stay away from, from what I, what I won't do because, you know, you discover, you discover a points of interest, a, a joy, importance in, in, in a variety. Um, and I think that that's so far, I mean, what I've done, you know, has been a variety as well. And I've, I've enjoyed all post things and everything that I've done. I think it's part of the fun. And uh, and we'll see we'll see what uh, what the next uh, what the next challenge is uh, will be. But uh, yeah, again, that's it, it's really what what I enjoy about about this career. There's always there's always a next challenge and, and always something further to to learn and get acquainted with. Great, awesome. Last question: Next, this coming year, the second year of the Abraham Accords, if you had to pick the next. Uh, country that could normalize with Israel? What would you put your, put your money on? Well, this is, this is where I'm going to end up uh, answering diplomatically. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I can't really look, I know that there is so much potential out there. And I know that, uh, you know, we, um, there is no secret that we have existing relations with different countries in our region and beyond our region. Uh, that don't yet um, that are not yet at the stage of really establishing them openly publicly as official diplomatic relations but we do enjoy that and i do think that uh, we will see this continue to grow because in the end it is of mutual interest uh, the, the 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 relations that we are now uh, um, um, formalizing um, are based really on on addressing common challenges and on promoting a mutual interest for for the benefit of both sides. And I think that the more the more that this camp grows, the easier it will be to have others uh, others join. Um, so yeah, not naming a specific a, a specific country, but um, very very optimistic. Okay. About about the growth of this camp. It will probably not be Afghanistan. Sadly, sadly, no. Although, who knows? You never know how. Yeah, they say they've changed. Yeah. Well, I, they've I, changed. I can tell you that as a um, as a woman, I'm I'm watching with great concern what oh, yeah. is going on. A, what is going on there? 
Most definitely. And uh, I, I, I wish the the Afghan people um, and all those, uh, yeah. You know, may, 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 may suffer even more a, a brighter a brighter future ahead. Can I can I ask one final question? As long as we're on that topic, what what is Israel's diplomatic role when there's a crisis like that, which is which is a very human crisis? Uh, you mean with a country, country with whom we don't with, have in a country of which we don't have? Like th- there was a something today. I saw a, 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 a news flash about you know somebody in Israel mentioned that maybe it was in Meretz uh, that that we should take a role in resettling Afghan refugees here in Israel, for example, which. Anybody who's living in Israel right now, I think, and I, I don't see that as a, something that will realistically happen. But I think that you know, it's 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 nice to say that. I think uh, I think that is, we have I think that we have a, a we have a proven record of being true to the value of tikkun olam mm-hmm. and of a going out of our way wherever it is feasible. Um, to uh, to assist, and it's not just you know uh, uh, you're speaking of a of a country that is a bit further away from from us, uh, but I think Operation Good Neighbor on our northern border, yeah. where Israel um, treated uh, injured Syrians um, without asking questions because they were humans in need of assistance. Um, um, I think that that is a, a perfect example of 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 what the state of Israel is is about, and what many are not familiar with. Definitely, definitely. Well, Anat, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, I definitely can say on behalf of Dan, who's uh, slowly fading into a jet lag coma. Uh, <laughs> I have a secret to get over jet lag in one day, wherever I go. Um, but, but yes, I'm definitely feeling the, uh, <laughs> the effects of three, <laughs> three days of travel, three flights, four flights. How many flights did I go on? Be strong. Oh, it was ridiculous. Anyway, Anat, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. It was great seeing you. And we wish you all the best and all the best of luck in everything you're doing out there in the, in the Southeast on our behalf. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Take care. We'll see you all next time on Juanced. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.